0: Welcome to Browns Film Breakdown, I'm your host Jake Burns, writer over at the OBR, and we are checking in after the Browns. 31-15 loss here at home to uh, the Baltimore Ravens, and what was a result that I think everybody probably expected. I don't think there were many people who thought the Browns had a realistic shot to win, but they have seemed to play the Ravens decently, and I thought that they might give them a pretty good game. For the most part, it was a good game. Um, there was a two-minute swing there in the uh, late second quarter that we will talk about that changed the course of this game, but um, again, based on what is uh, available for Cleveland up front defensively, based on um, you know the Browns, how they've been playing as a team offensively, the lack of cohesion, I thought this was going to be a next-to-impossible game because the Ravens really needed this game, wanted this game for where they're going, their, their bye week Um, potential which they obviously had pretty close to locked up and then obviously the biggest thing they wanted was home field advantage and now they do have that home field advantage locked up as they go to 13 and 2 the 12 and 3 Patriots even if those teams both um, were to come away with even records so New England winning next week Baltimore losing to Pittsburgh it would mean the head-to-head split would go to Baltimore so they did lock up home field advantage to the playoffs which is a big advantage to Baltimore obviously playing at M&T Bank Stadium is a tough place for opponents to play, but we'll not talk too much about Baltimore. We'll really focus on what the hell's going on with Cleveland. So looking at the numbers from this game, um, we'll start with team total net yards. Um, Baltimore was able to double up Cleveland, 481 yards to Cleveland's only 241. 31 first downs for Baltimore, only 17 for Cleveland. 7 for 11, third down. Cleveland only 3 for 12. Offensive plays, uh, 71 for Baltimore, only 53 for Cleveland. They averaged 6.8 yards a play. Cleveland only 4.5. Net rushing 243 to just 49 for Cleveland, 238 through the air for Baltimore, 192 for Cleveland. Both teams seven penalties, both teams one turnover, Cleveland five punts to Baltimore's two, and then um, Baltimore had 10 more minutes of possession time. So Lamar Jackson goes 17 for 103 on the ground, Uh, Gus Edwards 12 for 66, Mark Ingram 8 for 55. I thought Mark Ingram might have tore his Achilles, the way he kind of jump cut, land, and grabbed that Um, back part of his leg, either an Achilles or a calf rupture. I hope he's okay. It would be pretty unfortunate for their run if a big part of their offense is out for the foreseeable future. Lamar goes 20 of 31, 238 yards, three touchdowns. Mark Andrews, 6 for 93 and two touchdowns. Has to be particularly tough for Baker Mayfield to watch the tight end that he used at Oklahoma. Those two linked up for big plays all over the field at Oklahoma. Now he has to watch him on his Division rival doing the same with Lamar Jackson it has to be especially tough there. Mark Ingram had two catches for 36 yards. Justice Hill had three catches for 32. So this, the, the the running backs um, out of the backfield go five for uh, 70 out of the backfield with a touchdown. Cleveland just decided to play coverage that ignored the running backs all day. Whether that was Cover Three and they just weren't getting to the flat, or they were they were dropping in Cover Two and cornerbacks were unaware of anybody. Um, releasing to the flat, Baltimore just took advantage of wide open uh, passing opportunities to their running backs and not in any particularly deadly useful schemes, just checks to the flat or even like little late crossers out of the backfield. That was really disappointing because it was just so easy for Lamar to be able to dump those throws off. Nick Boyle, their other tight end, three catches, 24, Seth Roberts, two for 23. So their only receiver with any (laughs) impactful yards were two, two catches for 23 yards for Seth Roberts. Then Hayden Hurst has a catch for nine yards, and uh, Miles Boykin is uh, their other receiver. I mean, the two big-time receivers, I, I air quotes them big-time, but they're two primary receiving targets, uh, Miles Boykin and Malcolm Brown, one catch for six yards for Brown, one catch for eight yards for Boykin. And then you look at Willie Snead had no catches on one target. They don't even use wide receivers. They don't even need them. That's how you know they were able to operate and, and, and dominate the middle of the field against Cleveland today um, with, with with relative ease. Matthew Judon has five tackles Jimmy Smith has four Marlon Humphrey has four and in an interception Earl Thomas has four Chris Wormley has four for Cleveland Nick Chubb 15 for 45 didn't feel like an active part of the game plan I thought Baltimore did a nice job of bottling him up but I did not feel like Cleveland went into the game with a focus on giving Nick the ball or doing some of the the lateral moving line. Um, things pin-pull type schemes that I thought they did really well earlier in the year. Maybe they didn't think that Baltimore was going to allow them to do that based on alignment. I'm not sure, but they only ran for 45 yards. Nick Chubb, like I said, uh, Baker Mayfield runs, runs twice for four yards. Cream Hunt runs three times for no yards, so 49 total yards on the ground. Um, Baker goes 20 of 33, 192, two touchdowns, one pick. Could have had two other interceptions there that were overturned. Um, they worked out in his favor. Uh, Jarvis Landry has 7 for 74, uh, Odo Beckham has 4 for 44, Kareem Hunt has 4 for 33, Ricky Seals-Jones has 1 for 23, Steven Carlson 1 for 7, Kadero Hodge 1 for 6, Dontre Hilliard 1 for 4, Demetrius Harris a 1-yard touchdown. Uh, defensively, ton of plays so a ton of tackles, Demarius Randall 10, Joe Schobert 9, Taki Taki 6, thought he was all over the field uh, for the most part. Denzel Ward, 5, Sheldrick Redwine, 5, Mac Wilson, 4. So that is a look at your culminative stats from this debacle. Uh, it never felt like a game Cleveland. So they go up 6-0 early in the game. It's kind of a back-and-forth punt. They actually get a takeaway on a, on a fumbled exchange. That was really Cleveland's only hope. They had an opportunity there in the second half to get a fumble recovery. Uh, I don't know how the hell that ball didn't come to Cleveland or how they didn't come out with it. It looked like somebody Sheldrick Redwine had it, should have had both hands on that under the pile. But for some reason, Baltimore comes out with it. Um, it never really felt like, even though Cleveland's up 6 nothing, they get that long drive that, that takes them down the field. A couple penalties help them. Uh, Baltimore gets his pass interference in the end zone. Specifically, I think that was a drive with an interception wiped out due to a holding on the backside. So Cleveland gets fortunate. They go up 6 nothing. Then this is where the talking point comes in. It's something I'm going to try to write about. So, um, you know, Baltimore is able to – it's third and one – and it's before the two-minute mark, and Cleveland has it, I think, cl- relatively close to midfield, maybe at like their own 40. Um, anyway, they run this gimmicky, I don't know, they try to fake it to, 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 to Nick Chubb and then and toss it, pitch it out the backside to Cream Hunt, but give him a chance to throw it. And it's just like, I get that Freddie likes these little wrinkle plays, and I think the fan base likes them too when they work, but when teams are expecting, hey, this could be a situation where Kitchens likes to call these plays, and he's called them quite often on third and short, fourth and short situations, never really long down and distance situations, but third and fourth and short type of situations. Teams have an idea it's coming and they're preparing for it. It gets blown up, and it just looks like a Pop Warner football play as Kareem Hunt's holding onto the ball with one hand to throw it. So they punt to Baltimore. Instead of just, you know, hell, quarterback sneak or giving the football to the NFL's leading rusher, whatever they they punt it there's just i don't know there's just a time to get cute you can have those cute opportunities and then there's a time where you just really need to buckle down and be able to get a couple yards and they don't seem to know the the balance between that that's something that they struggle with as an offensive staff is the balance between the cute gimmick stuff and being able to just be an effective offense so anyway they punt uh baltimore goes down a busted demarius randall coverage over the middle of the field cover three with no threat to the backside, You have two out routes, I believe, by the outside receivers and a seam route by number two on the right side. Nobody is even near Mark Andrews up the seam. I don't know how that gets blown. Uh, Demarius Randall's yelling on the sideline, arguing, I'm not sure. They should have three deep zone defenders to handle that situation. They don't. It's an easy touchdown throw. So Cleveland then gets it back with about a minute 10-ish left in the, in the half. I think it's something like that. Uh, I think that... Yeah, Baltimore scores at a minute 18, Cleveland gets it back. Now, this is where people started complaining because Cleveland throws it three times. I, I get you want them to run it, but if they run it and it's and it's nothing, then you're giving up that entire situation, a positive situation, that you can go get some points before the half. Baltimore gets it coming out of the half, so as a coach, your thought process is probably, I need to be able to get a field goal at least on the board here to combat Baltimore coming back out of the half, and then all of a sudden we're down 14-6. to we're really not effectively stopping them all too much. We can see late in the half, but um, to me, Kitchens is calling plays with the idea of we need to score here. So they do throw three incomplete passes. But as a coach, your thought process is if we just complete one, even if it's short of the sticks, the clock is going to be moving, and obviously it's going to eliminate the chance for Baltimore to score. But then the worst possible outcome there is Cleveland doesn't complete a pass, and there's three incomplete passes, and you're punting to Baltimore, and they have an opportunity to uh, to, to to produce a drive before half. But In my opinion, if he doesn't go for it there and go to try to score, he just runs out the half, he looks like a air quotes coward. He's damned if he does and and, and damned if he doesn't. So he's trying to be aggressive with a team with very little to play for. There's slim playoff hopes. So he's trying to be aggressive and go after a win by putting points on the board because he knows Baltimore is going to be able to put points on the board as well. So you can get mad at him. But the thing to get mad about, in my opinion, is the third and one play call. I think you you would hope that your quarterback is able to complete one of those passes. Mayfield sails the ball up the seam, goes high, almost intercept on first down. Second down misses a zone defender, ball gets tipped, and then third down a ball gets batted down. Like you just would presume that you'd be able to complete one of those. The worst possible outcome is a punt. Even with a punt though, you would hope that your defense can somewhat hold them with no timeouts, make one play. All you have to do is really make one sack or tackle in bounds. And you have a chance to get off the field. So, or, you know, just get the clock to run to half. I, you can kill him, and I kill Freddie for a lot of things, but I just didn't think that was a. It sucks because the Ravens score 14 points, and it's a swing in momentum and all of those annoying things, but it's, uh, to me, it wasn't a spot in which you should necessarily kill him. I get the line of thinking there. But the second half, the Ravens come out, and, and, and I think they go in the second half, six of seven um, third down conversions. The Browns never. Were able to surmount any sort of consistency in terms of stopping them defensively. Uh, they were able to run whatever type of option they wanted to run, and unless they were putting the football on the field personally, it felt like Baltimore had, um, you know, the ability to do whatever they wanted to do. The only way Cleveland's going to stop them is if it was downfield plenty, or if it was uh, um, a situation in which they, like I said, they they shot themselves in the foot. So they threw six of eight in that quarter. Baltimore did. And then they ran it 11 times for 73 yards. So they run 19 total plays there. Cleveland only runs um, five pass attempts and four run plays, so nine. So they essentially doubled up Cleveland in that quarter. And they took a large chunk of the early portion of the clock and a large chunk of the late portion of the clock after Cleveland ended up giving it back to them. And then in the fourth quarter, Baltimore throws three passes and runs 17 times uh, to Cleveland's only 12 uh, total plays, three Nick Chubb runs that go backwards and then – mayfield completed six of nine throws but you know baltimore dominates this is what you can And the formula for beating the ravens is formula the Browns really used in the first matchup, which is you have to, and I talked about this on 92.3 this morning I was on, you have to get out on them early. You have to jump up early and put them in situations where Lamar, predictable situations where Lamar has to throw. Now, Lamar is good enough, he's able to throw in predictable situations, but it does take away the element of run, pass, read that your second and third levels have to worry about. Playing the run game, playing their run fits that is so deadly when the Ravens put you know, multiple running backs and tight ends on the field. If you can get them into throwing situations exclusively, you have at least a shot of bottling Lamar up in the pocket or spying him and coming out of it. And then you put him, you know, make him test his accuracy on downfield throws and consistently, you know, throwing accurately to all parts of the field. That's how you beat them. And Cleveland played out in front of them in Baltimore and put that pressure on Lamar and he wasn't able to come through. So... Um, the guy's really good. You just have to be able to find situations that you can make him do what he's least comfortable doing, and I thought early in the game they were able to sort of do that to an extent. They didn't jump out by two scores. Like, the way you beat them in the playoffs is you better get out in front by two scores. If you can't get out in front by two scores, you're going to be battling them, and then you get behind. So Cleveland falls behind late in the half. Then Baltimore comes out and scores another touchdown to open the second half, and it's all of a sudden a 21-6 to game, and you're Cleveland. You're fighting against – you know you're fighting against a team that just really knows how to handle uh, clock management, and they can run the football for first downs, and they'll get to third down, and then you have a third and two, third and three, and it's ridiculously challenging to to have Lamar. Um, you know, working out of the pocket, scrambling, ducking, and only needing to get a couple yards or a short crossing route. That's what they're most effective doing, and they did a really good job of that. And Lamar is so slippery, he can make one person miss. The guy has one of the best stop-start abilities I've ever seen in terms of a guy can be at full speed, he can put one foot in the ground and really have that ability to make one man miss. I think it's probably one of the best parts of his game is that almost any time he scrambles or runs an option, designed run scheme, he's almost guaranteed to make one person miss. And I think that is, you know, what puts defenses in a really tough bind, especially on those third and shorts and, um, you know, gathered up and caught up against Cleveland. I know an inability to get a generated pass rush or a generated pressure from their front four has been a pretty consistent problem over the past three, four weeks. This is their second straight week over 200 yards, their third straight week giving up um, a 100-yard rusher, Uh, Dating back to Joe Mixon with Cincinnati. So it's catching up. I don't think the linebacker skill is great enough to overcome lack of D line um, impact. And, you know, without Olivier Vernon, without Miles Garrett, I think it is having an impact. And I thought defensively the game plan was relatively safe. Didn't think they really wanted to challenge Baltimore, um, you know, put them in situations that made Baltimore uncomfortable for fear of giving up a big play, which is, to me, you know with the secondary it's interesting because you have a full strength secondary and i thought that they'd be you know at least decently served to get after the quarterback with some creative rush stuff try to bottle him in i think the fear with blitzing lamar so much is that he escapes that blitz and then is able to make a big play happen with nobody in the second half but i thought it was a safe game plan and uh it, you know it certainly was one that that uh they tried to mitigate risk but with baltimore they're good enough that they can run into uh, drop heavy teams who don't like to bring pressure, and they're able to, when teams do bring pressure or when two teams do uh, beat one on one blocking up front, they have a quarterback that can escape, and that's what's going to make Baltimore an especially tough out in the playoffs. And, um, you know, Cleveland's whole thought process as a franchise here is going to be. How do we beat Baltimore and how do we beat Lamar Jackson? That has to be the thought process. And when you look at how you're shaping your defense, you have to have linebackers that can run. You have to have corners that can come up and make plays against option stuff sometimes. You have to have, you know, uh, uh, safeties that can be impactful in both phases. And I just um, I just don't see it right now as consistently as it needs to be, you know, at least it needs to be done. I, Demarius Randle, his mystifying season remains, um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't particularly know what to say about him. I think it's, it's pretty much a lock that he's gone. I think his presence has worn on, the coaching staff, and I think his inconsistent play hasn't necessarily helped him either. So that continues to look like a position that they will totally reshape. The million-dollar question is what they're going to do with Freddie. And I tweeted this out earlier. I, I don't know. There's a lot of negativity surrounding this franchise right now. There's a lot of negativity. In sideline interactions, there's a lot of negativity in the press conferences that are coming out week to week. I don't really know where they're going to go. I think that what they will do, the biggest thing, I said this early in the year, as long as Baker Mayfield continued to play well and they had holes at other spots, whatever, whatever, it, it could be something that you could keep keep down the same path. Because what, what got Freddie hired was his ability to generate points and generate the best out of Mayfield. That has not happened in year two. So, as an organization, you sit down and say, "Hey, you know, we had really good intentions with Freddie. I think the idea behind hiring him was this relationship he had with the quarterback and this relationship that was able to bring out the best in both and bring out the best in wins for the scoreboard." So, um, you know, I, I don't think they can continue down this path with how how terrible this year has gone. For both of them, for for Mayfield taking what seems like several regression steps backward and then then Freddie with some of his decision-making, the idea is you sit down and say, hey, we can't go forward with this pairing. Where do we go? We have to separate. Do we separate from the quarterback or do we separate from the coach? It's an obvious answer. You likely separate from the coach because – you know you've invested so much as a first overall pick with Baker Mayfield you've given him gratuitous amounts of money and you have this investment in who he becomes and you want to bring out the best in him and and they think um the easier thing that I would think to do is separate the coach now this would be you know probably something that most of you like which that's fine i i'm generally in favor of it too because i haven't seen the improvement with things from Freddie Kitchens that i would like to see but um Then it becomes, you know, this will be year three for Mayfield with his third year with a different head coach and his third year with a different play caller. And that starts to become worrisome because the biggest thing you want for your quarterback is to feel comfortable. And um, that's not something that he's able to consistently do, being with three different people in three different years. You know, you don't want to do the continuity for continuity's sake. Either a coach has it or they don't. And maybe Freddie doesn't have it. And there are a lot of things, guys, that we don't know from the outside looking in. We can judge player interactions. We can judge a lot of different things. But we don't know where the breakdowns are happening and why they're happening. There's no doubt they have to get better along the offensive line. But there are problems, alignment. There are problems with plays coming in quick enough. There are problems with movement along, uh, you know, getting set with motions and who's going in motion. Those things have been consistent. And players like David Njoku and Rashad Higgins, who were big contributors, um, you know, last year, have taken steps backward. Obviously, Njoku de- dealing with an injury, but even when he's come back, now this is two straight inactives, it, it is um, – who has gotten better this year? If you look at the table and say – uh, you lay out all the players on the table and say, who's gotten better? Who's made strides under Freddie Kitchens? I don't know. I don't know who you can say has really gotten better. The offensive line has not improved um, from where we left them at the end of last year. There's obviously needs to be reshaping going on up there. I, I just I have a hard time making a good sound argument to keep Freddie. But again, I'm not in that office, I'm not in the, the personnel rooms, I'm not making those decisions. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I do know that the status quo with this pair and whatever the hell Todd Monkin's influence is and whatever, you know, Ryan Lindley's influence is as a quarterback room, you know, guy or the quarterback coach. I don't know I don't know a lot of stuff but I do know that this pairing probably can't continue on and whenever these things seem to happen it is a a situation where the head coach is gone and the quarterback obviously stays because they're so early in his investment into what Mayfield becomes and they don't want to walk away from it so quickly but whatever they do whoever they hire or if they keep Freddie whatever they have to figure out the issue with Baker and um and and why they can't seem to generate a passing offense downfield with any success. Another week, under 200 yards passing, where they're unable to drive the football downfield with success. When we do see Mayfield try to drive the football downfield, we're seeing too many high throws. It's um it's just it's an inconsistent year and a very troublesome year in what we hoped was going to be a path of, of uh, of progression. And even before the year when there was genuine. MVP buzz for this young quarterback so the personnel seems to be here on the offensive side of the ball at some key positions they have two good running backs they will likely place a tender on uh, Kareem Hunt and probably be able to keep him Um, they have two pretty good wide receivers they could use another good tight end Um, I think that that would help them because I've said all year I think the structure around Baker Mayfield should involve quality tight ends above all else we'll see whether they think that path is worth pursuing I'm not sure yet um, but they have to reshape their offensive line in three positions. I don't know where they go. I don't know how they do it. I don't know if they draft capital it or if they use it as a um, you know, a free agency situation. it remains to be seen. But what I do know is that the status quo is not good enough uh, at the top. The status quo is not good enough at anchoring tight positions along the offensive line. The defensive line needs depth corrections. I tweeted out a list of positions I'd hoped that they'd upgrade. Those were not that was not a list of importance, but they have to reshape the safeties. I don't know what their picture is with the linebacker room going forward and whether they want to keep Joe. There's a lot of questions going into this offseason. The first thing they have to do though is figure out the head coach because it remains that there's a cultural problem around the Browns and this losing cloud. This whatever-can-go-wrong-will-go-wrong cloud that hangs over this franchise is still there. The thing that we hope was eradicated with the the magical end of last season is still there. That has to be Jimmy and D Haslam. They're involved. They're leading this thing. John Dorsey is going to start to get pressure in his direction because he's making the personnel decisions. They just have to be better, and they have to come up with a formula that they trust and they believe in, and it has to also start with getting – Higher character people in the building. You cannot rely on so many bad apples to run inside of a locker room where a losing environment is happening. Because at that point, those those negative people, those people that make bad choices, start to rub off on other people in terms of a team atmosphere, and then it gets really toxic really quickly. So we'll see. There's a lot to there's a lot to know that we don't know right now. So. It's unfortunate. We thought this year was going to provide some answers. We thought this year was going to provide some clarity. We thought this year was going to provide some enjoyment. But we have not had that enjoyment. And it has been a uh it has been a laborious season. It has not been fun. I, I mentioned this last week. It's not been fun. I'm sure you haven't had a ton of fun with it. Even with six wins and maybe seven next week against the Bengals. It has not been as fun as we all imagined it would be. And I think the biggest goal is getting these guys offensively and defensively to believe in who they're playing for, believe in the vision that the franchise has, and uh, and bring in some high-quality people who can help turn this thing around with the right sorts of attitudes and the right sort of outlook and team-first mentality stuff. So it's not all for naught. I mean, I think there's still going to be plenty of talent here. It's just going to be... Whether it's Freddie or whether it's somebody new, can the guy they have in charge, who's hired and responsibility um, of of the of the management team here, can they get the right guy in in place to uh, to provide that vision and provide an understanding between the players and the coaches how to get it done? We're, we'll see. If not, it's going to be a total regime flush, and it'll be back to totally square one. I don't want to really get there because I don't think we need to get there right now. But there's a lot of changes that are going to need to be happening and uh, it involves players, it probably involves coaches. We'll just have to sit back and take it all in and you're going to fire questions about coaches at me. I don't know who I want right now. I, I, I don't know. I have to look at so many different factors and even when I tell somebody who I think is a good hire, um, which I don't shy from the fact that I was all in on Freddie. You, you don't know. You don't know enough. I don't know how Freddie's going to handle week to week, how he's going to handle camp, how he's going to handle play calling when he's a head coach and has to work and talk to officials. You don't know enough. You don't know enough about the person as an outsider to say, this was a great hire. We don't know. We, we really don't know. And I don't know if we'll ever have a formula to know before somebody actually gets that rule. So um, we keep rolling with the punches, guys. It's it's another week. Hopefully they finish on a high note, which is a win. In Cincinnati next week, we'll check in on how the Bengals are doing. That an overtime loss to uh, the Dolphins, and they secured the number one overall pick. So it's probably going to be Joe Burrow entering the division as a quarterback, which is unfortunate because he's a very good player. So we'll get there. We'll get there when we get there is the lame phrase that we will use. But until then, we'll come back, check in about the Bengals later this week, and uh, hopefully have some insight on them. And then we'll have our last regular season recap next Sunday. It's been a blast. I enjoy you guys always listening to this, giving me feedback, uh, giving me all sorts of uh, – Um, you know, back and forth and banter on on this team and where they're going and and the frustrations you have or the moments of happiness that we've had this year, too. It's all been a blast. We'll check in later this week. Until then, guys, go Browns. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers,